Welcome to VCR, a vintage cinema rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And a census taker tried to test me once. <laughs> and then you talked him into biting his own tongue off and swallowing himself. Swallowing himself. Swallowing himself, yes. That's <laughs> In a way, what I did. not technically incorrect. My girlfriend was watching The Little Mermaid the same time I was watching this, and we were <laughs> Cannot texting- be two more polar opposite films. No, you can we watch were- The Little Mermaid after this watching Silence of Lambs to, you know, cleanse your palate, but... Yeah, but, like, it was... So she was texting me, like, oh, like, the ending was so beautiful. Like, I <laughs> cried. And then I was texting her, like, Hannibal Lecter just uh, convinced some dude to swallow his own tongue. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you could say things are getting pretty interesting. Periods are getting pretty interesting. And her question was, how is that even possible? And I texted back, I don't know, but I have questions. <laughs> Not technically possible, but we'll get back to that later. Okay. Although, potentially, if you were to convince... There there was a whole analysis online you know about what? that. If anyone could convince someone to swallow their own tongue, it would be Dr. Lecter. And that's what's so great is, again, Anthony Hopkins not only sells the character and how devious he is, but the plot of the film and the writing of the film also does a lot of the heavy lifting there and, and building up how terrifying Hannibal Lecter is. And so let's start, you know, moving back for a sec. This is part two, our spoilerful discussion of Silence of the Lambs, the Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins award-winning film. Like we said, one of the greatest films of all time. If you've never seen this film, why are you listening to this episode? Go back and listen to the pr- the primer episode. It's spoiler-free and, and really get into it there go check it out, come back, and and we'll discuss it in full spoilers right now. It would be very rude of you not to watch part one of this episode. And we know how (laughs) Dr. Lecter feels about rudeness. Yeah, you don't want Dr. Lecter showing up at your house by Mm -hmm. any means. So, that being said, that's the spoiler warning. Let's talk first 20 minutes of this film, the greatest 20-minute opener of all time, in my opinion. I was completely on the edge of my seat. I actually paused at the 20-minute mark because it's a clear, like, that was the opener of the film. And, and I was like, that was incredible. Like I paused it to see where we were at. And I was like, that was, that was 20 minutes. I was completely on the edge of my seat, completely enchanted with what was going on. You know, one thing I forgot to bring up in part one that I thought was really effective is the warden. Dr. Chin is guiding Jodie Foster down the steps. Mm -hmm. And he just is kind of like, Oh yeah. He's like, be careful around Dr. Lecter. He's like, one time he complained about chest pains, so we took him to the infirmary for an EKG, and he ripped the nurse's tongue out of her skull, and then he, like, pulls, like, a Polaroid out of his chest. He's like, here, this is what he did to her. And, like, we don't see the Polaroid, and that yes. was very effective. I And actually, that was a point that I wrote down, is this film is very effective at knowing when to show us things and knowing mm. when to hide things from us and just let our imaginations run wild. And that is yeah. like the perfect moment of not showing us that because that was even scarier not seeing the result of that. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I want to talk full details of the 20 minutes because I, like I said, this is honestly, this is the high point of the movie for me is the first 20 minutes. But mm. It's incredible. It's just, you know, we get this opener with like really eerie music playing while Jodie Foster is running the circuit. You know, we already like right off the bat, like you said, we see that she's kind of out of place in this setting in the FBI training headquarters. Uh, she's just surrounded by these big burly dudes who, who very 
obviously uh, don't go out of their way to like make her feel welcome necessarily either. There's right? a lot of moments when, you know, there's that moment later on where she's kickboxing with her friend and all the other dudes are kind of just very brazenly looking at her like, mm-hmm. what are you doing here? Right. Like, right. You can't roll with us. Yeah. So we get that kind of buildup and then we see the Buffalo Bill, all of that imagery as we go into Jack Crawford's study. And Jack Crawford kind of says to Clarice that he's chosen her to go and, you know, have this meeting with Hannibal Lecter to ask him this questionnaire kind of thing. See if she can, you know, crack him open and all. They're trying something new, basically, right? Yeah. Well, and again, they're using her gender almost as a weapon, right? Right. Like later on, the warden actually says like, oh, like, you know, it was smart of them to send you. Like, you're like a young, pretty woman. Like, he probably hasn't even seen a woman in eight years. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we get that build up and we get, you know, the rules of what you can and can't do when you see Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Mm -hmm. And then it's the whole, like, the whole walk down to Hannibal Lecter is, is just like building and building and building of tension. And then, you know, like even at the point in time where we get into that little room that the control center with the different prison guards and like they're almost medical people kind of standing by and and Clarice is kind of looking around the room and everything's just so eerie in a way and then and then the way the way that she looks up at the like that big massive dude uh who's kind of going to give her the last rundown before she goes into there just all of that build up is is such a great buildup and it builds a scary anticipation within you of like, what are, where are we and what are we going to, what are we really going to meet? Who are we really going to meet? And it's at like the deepest dungeon of all time. Like, you know, we, we just keep going lower and lower and lower. And then, dungeon is a great word for it. Like it's yeah. like the bowels of the castle. Yeah. Like it's literally like in the, like, the lowest dungeon, like, you know, lock the door and throw away the key. And actually, you know, as I was thinking this, I, I was kind of chuckling to myself because they literally, like, open that gate for her to go down into the, the room where they're all locked up. And they each have their own cell. But they lock that door behind her. They're so afraid of these people that are in this lowest of the low level that they lock her in with them. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't notice that on my first viewing, but that's right. It's basically like, all right, hope you don't die. <laughs> like, yeah, it know? really is. They're like, we left a chair out for you. Good luck. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> they did leave a chair out. I did love, Um, we do get to meet Barney, though, the one nice person in the whole movie. Right. He's just like, <laughs> you'll do fine. Like, good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like I said in the primer episode, this this is the point where the film either is made or or unmade by Anthony Hopkins' portrayal. And- he just completely blows it out of the water. Like he well, is and not to cut you off, but like we do pass she passes two prisoners on her way there. Right. And they're both terrifying and deranged. Yep. And then we get to Anthony Hopkins and he's got like a glass cell. And I loved that he's actually standing up. Right. It's almost he's just like standing he's, there, like eyes like really wide, waiting in anticipation. Yeah, for it's almost like him. he smelled her coming, right? Well, and, and that's the word that they use, right? Is is one of the other characters, uh his name was Miggs, right? Miggs, yeah. I can smell your I don't think I'm allowed to say that word. You can't but say that on this podcast, but uh I can yeah. smell your bleed. Lady parts. Yeah, lady parts. <laughs> 
yeah and and so like that all of that imagery is is terrifying and then you, you know even like the way Hannibal Lecter plays off of that too right like he's like oh what did he say to you when you walked in here and then you know he does like the the sniffing like at the the little like air holes in his cell he can smell her hand cream like yeah. Yeah. he knows it by name and then she tries to get him to play ball but he sees through it so quickly like and he's almost unimpressed like bah like yeah in in even though beyond that though because she's not sure of herself at this point either right like no. like i said there she's there's this under lying like bubbling intelligence that's within her but she hasn't proven herself yet and and there's some hesitancy in in what she's trying to do in in this moment and it's even something that like Hannibal Lecter is trying to like put her off her game right like he's constantly like basically berating her and trying to get under her skin in this first meeting Mm -hmm. she does a pretty good job of going toe-to-toe with him in that first that first run there's that great moment where I forget what Hannibal Lecter says but she grabs onto it as like a segue and she's like i wonder if you could turn that analysis onto these case files and i was kind of like good job clarice like you did it but then hannibal lecter is very quickly like oh that was like heavy-handed of you like that like get out of (laughs) here yeah so it's two people playing chess with each other and it's always really entertaining to watch two people of this caliber of intelligence kind of go after it. But like Hannibal Lecter is like an Olympic level chess player and she is still figuring out the rules. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as that far. She's, she's working her way up. That's fair. Well, and because that's, that's what part of what sells this movie is like, I genuinely believe that Clarice is very intelligent and, and, and is going to do great things with her career. Well, she demonstrates, there's a great moment jumping ahead a bit. There's a great moment later on where they go to a small town to inspect one of the bodies and like they need to get all these basically podunk cops out of the surgery room so they can perform their analysis and they're not listening to Jack Crawford. So she steps up like I assume Jodie Foster is like five foot two or something. And she just basically says, hey, everybody listen to me. Like, you all did a great job. Like, I'm proud of you, but you need to let us take it from here, all right? So get out of here and let us do our job. And everyone's just kind of like, oh, okay. And they all just, like, they leave, right? Right. So, yeah. And even Jack Crawford kind of has a moment where he's like, oh, good job. Like, you did it. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Like, uh, it's... Mm-hmm. And even Lecter grows to, like, kind of grudgingly respect her. I don't even think it's grudgingly. I think he just, like, after this, maybe the second or third, their second and third meeting, he, he's come to really respect her. And that, that kind of plays into, like, later on in the film, right? Like mm-hmm. like you said, that, that really great line of once Hannibal Lecter's escape, she says to her friend and the FBI, he won't come after me. And she, and the friend goes, oh, really? And Clarice says, no, he won't. Like, I can't explain it, but he, he would, would consider, consider that rude. rude. Yeah. yeah. There's also that great moment when Hannibal Lecter meets the detective and he gives them the right information, but he gives them the wrong name. Right. And it turns out the name he gave them is an anagram for like, I forget what it's called, like iron sulfide, which yes. is like an anagram for fool's gold. 
Yeah. And she confronts him about it, like, oh, like, fool's gold, like, come on. And he's even kind of like, oh, like, yeah, you figured it out. Like, <laughs> yeah, good for you. Yeah, exactly. And and like I was saying earlier, like, Hannibal Lecter kind of uses her own ambitions against her, right? Like, he he's psychoanalyzing her. And that's what's really interesting about the character is he's he's a psychotherapist by, by trade, right? So, you know, he's... That's what makes him such a an interesting, compelling character is he's often the smartest person in the room, despite, you know, how maniacally crazy and evil he is. Yeah, like he's I think I read somewhere that Anthony Hopkins based his portrayal off Hal 9000 from 2001. Yes, that's definitely one of the biggest influences. He's like a supercomputer. Like he's mm-hmm. just like, you know. That this movie makes me really want to go back and watch 2001: A Space Odyssey again because what a, what a phenomenal film as well. But that's a really interesting point that that's one of the main influences of the character. Well, you also get the sense that he's just phenomenally bored in his yes. prison cell, right? Like at one point in the movie, he starts asking for information about her, mm-hmm. and it's almost just partly it seems like he's genuinely interested and just wants to know more about her. Also, it just seems like he's just so fucking bored (laughs) that he wants to know, like, he just wants some information. Well, and that kind of goes against some of the rules, right, that's laid out, is that, you know, you you shouldn't give him any personal information. But Clarice uses that as, like, a, you know, there's some risk and reward, right? Like, the quid pro quo of it right the you know tit for tat like you give me a little bit i give you a little bit kind of thing and sh- and she's taking a big risk there but in in taking that risk that's where hannibal lecter comes to really respect her right mm-hmm. and as we see later on in this film that one of the great quotes at the end of this film which we'll get to is when he basically says like i'm not going to come after you because the world needs people like you uh, yeah it's more in it's more interesting with people like you in it yeah, yeah. And that's always something I kind of personally admire in stories is when the villain kind of respects the hero. Mm-hmm. Like, you see that a lot. Like, you know, you could make the Batman-Joker comparison or, you know, there's other comparisons I could make, but I'm drawing a blank right now. But, you know, that's something that's always kind of interesting when the villain is almost kind of like... The hero and the villain almost kind of like each other, but they're on opposite sides. Right. Well, I I mean, Heat is another great example. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it's a very interesting trope that is always exciting to watch Mm -hmm. and and to see how it's going to play out on screen, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Do you get any romantic chemistry between the two of them? Um, I thought about that a little bit. I I don't... think so i think that's just you know just both of those actors have just such great on-screen chemistry with each other that's a little bit there and i think that's also because of the nature of both of them they're both on their own island uh, of as people right like there's just they have nobody around them who who is really even close to a match to either of them there's sort of a loneliness to both of them yeah yeah Exactly. And so and so I think that's why partially why they're attracted to each other, because there's a deeper understanding. And I think that's also maybe part of the reason why Hannibal Lecter wants to analyze her the way that he does, because I think he's he himself is trying to understand why he's so intrigued by her. Interesting. Yeah, I did. I think I read that they in the book series, they do become lovers at some point. (laughs) 
I can't believe that. I, I can't believe that. I, uh, I think I read that today, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope that's not true. I almost kind of almost got like father-daughter vibes. Yeah, a, a little bit, and, and that kind of speaks to the backstory of Clarice, right? Her mother died when she was young. Her father uh, was a police officer and, and died again while she was really young, and, and how much of an impact that had on her and then the story of the lamb screaming as well and and all of that's kind of coming together to to make a really compelling backstory for a character and and again why i think that her and hannibal lecter feel such a connection between the two of them and how great is that line at the end when he calls her and he just says like have you silenced the lambs yes like, have the lambs stopped screaming Yes. Oh yeah. my God. That that gave me chills when he said that. Mm-hmm. Also, can we talk about the most detestable character in the movie? Because it's Go not Buffalo it. Bill. It's <laughs> the fucking warden, Doctor Chitten or whatever. Like, yep. Yep. That guy sucks. <laughs> yep. I gotta hand it to the actor. He did a really good job playing an asshole. Oh yeah, he really does. And and like you said, it, it's funny how he turns the charm up while when he first when he first meets Clarice and then instantly shuts it down when he, she like, you know, pretty like respectfully passes on his advances. Right. Yeah. And then there's, he finds out Clarice has faked a deal to get information out of him. So mm-hmm. then he goes over her head to propose a real deal. Cause he wants the credit for hunt, finding this girl. And while he's talking to Hannibal Lecter, he has he leaves a pen in Hannibal Lecter's cell, and you just yes. see Hannibal Lecter looking at it, almost like, "Dude, are you really this stupid?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, he's like, "You're leaving me a pen, like, yeah. yeah, yeah." So, and then I guess that great moment at the end when Doctor Chitten has gone into hiding, and Hannibal Lecter just says, "I'm having an old friend for dinner," and then sneaks oh, away again. So, so uh, in my opinion, the this is the greatest 20 minute opener in film history ever. I think that the last like five minutes of this film is some of the best ending of a film as well. Like it's the implication is terrifying mm-hmm. of, of him, you know, being let loose on this tropical Island, like, you know, this perfect place. And he already has his next victim in his sights. I, I thought that that was so chilling and so it was just such a great way to end the film. It's also the way that they shot it as well, right? That one continuous shot as the credits play out of him walking down the street. Mm, yeah, and even just the implication, right? Oh, Hannibal Lecter has escaped and he's on the loose. Like, Yeah. Yeah, that is not something you want to know. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I have one more... Hannibal Lecter thing to discuss and then at some point we should probably talk about you know the actual main villain of the film Buffalo Bill yeah (laughs) sorry we haven't talked about Buffalo Bill at all the scene that I want to talk about is Hannibal Lecter's escape scene because oh my god is that terrifying (laughs) yeah really there's it and it's cut interspersed between other things happening in the film but that that 10 minutes was again like on the edge of my seat i i'd already seen this film but it was a long time ago but for whatever reason i knew instantly that hannibal lecter was basically hiding in broad daylight as one of the victims one of the police officer victims and i just thought he had cut his own face up 
to the point where it was unrecognizable so that he could get out of there. The truth to it is so much more horrifying. Yep. He cut the officer's face off and wore it like a mask. And here we are. Like, again, this is some of the scariest 10 minutes of of film history because just everything that happens in that, that 10 minutes, like he's operating on like another level. He's 10 steps ahead of everybody else in that room. You know, he knows that this charade can only last so long. You know, he's dumped a body in the elevator to give himself a few more minutes. He's wearing the face of the other guy to give himself a few more minutes. Like everything is just, just enough time to get him one step ahead of everybody else kind of thing to get him into the ambulance, to get to the next step of, of breaking out of the ambulance. And what's really interesting is there's a little bit of foreshadowing here because if you hadn't already guessed it, the film basically spells it out moments before he makes his grand reveal. And so what I'll, what I'll say to that is in Clarice's first meeting with Hannibal Lecter, when she's talking to Dr. Chilton, he says that, you know, like you said, when he attacked the nurse, his pulse never went above 85. And oh, so that went over my head. That yeah, went over my head. Yeah, callback in the ambulance when the paramedic says over the uh, radio that the patient's pulse has is 84. So basically the exact same as before kind of thing. Mm. And it's just like that, that brief little bit of, oh my God, that's Hannibal Lecter is where you're supposed to notice it. But it's, it's so subtle that it's almost, you almost know b- before that moment that that's going to be Hannibal Lecter. And I was not expecting him to pull the guy's face off of himself. Yeah, that, that bothered me and I did not see that coming. Neither did I. And I'd watched this movie before. I was watching those scenes like, how is he getting out of here? Because like, I kind of knew that he was going to escape like just through pop culture osmosis. But when he like leans up and pulls the face off, I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, I am going to shit my I am never going to be constipated again. Yeah, it's one of the scariest moments in film history. Mm -hmm. This isn't really this is just kind of a minor nitpick, but it's Mm -hmm. almost kind of hard to then go back to Buffalo Bill after that. You know what I, I mean? I have the exact same nitpick for you, actually, because, and and this is where I said I was going to come back to the, he won't, I can't explain it, he would consider that rude comment where Clarice says he won't come after me. So my nitpick with the film is, is in that moment, I truly believe Clarice and that, and that Hannibal Lecter will not come after her. That, because Clarice is the only one who understands really under the surface who Hannibal Lecter is or is the closest to understanding who and what Hannibal Lecter is. And so that moment for me, it's kind of like the cutoff between the second and third act of the film, really. Yeah. And in that moment, you know, I realized that this is going to be the last time or one of the last times we see Clarice and Hannibal Lecter interacting. And there's, there's like 10 minutes after that where I almost lose interest in the film a little bit. Like, the film has to try really hard to bring me back into it. And that's that's the only nitpick that I have with this film is that because that quote is so perfect, is is so accurate to to what's going to happen that that I lose a little bit of interest there. Well, it's almost just like I almost feel bad for Buffalo Bill or Ted Levine because like he does a really good job. It's just Hannibal Lecter is such a tough act to follow, right? Yeah. It almost kind of reminds me of, this is a weird example, but you've seen Death Note, right? Yep. 
It's kind of like when L dies and then they bring in the two. I stopped watching the show after that, honestly. Well, <laughs> you did the right thing because then they bring in two new villains and it's just it's just not the same. You're just like, eh. <laughs> yep. Where's L? I don't want, I don't want to, I don't care. Like, where's L? So that said, they, it, yeah, it definitely, this is another movie where, and again, this is still one of the greatest movies I've ever seen, but like the third act definitely goes down a little or like not so much goes down a little, but the third act definitely takes maybe 10 or 20 minutes to like find its footing again. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's just, it's almost like the movie checks its watch. It's like, oh, right. We have a, oh, right. Our villain. Um, <laughs> well, and that's what you and I are about to do is, oh, right. Our villain. Let's talk Buffalo Bill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and that's literally my segue is, <laughs> well, and it's, Bill. it's just as awkward as it is in the film. <laughs> yeah. I, again, I really like, I thought Buffalo Bill was genuinely terrifying Especially the scene at the end where Clarice stumbles into his house and we realize that she's alone with him. Yes. Like, that is fucking scary. And Yeah, and you know that there's no help anywhere by. And again, there's that famous scene where Catherine is down the well and Buffalo Bill says, It places the lotion in the basket. Or like, it places the lotion in the basket or else it gets the hose again. And then Catherine screams, and then Buffalo Bill screams. Like, it's just... Yeah, It's one of those moments where you're like, I can't tell if I should be laughing or shitting my pants. Probably yep. both. Like On the note of that scene in general, I actually want to dive into that scene a little bit because reading about the scene later, I thought it, it was low-key one of the more interesting scenes of the film. Um, and not just because of the quote, but because of the implication of the quote. Because up until this point, if you remember back uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes in the film... There's a moment where the senator, the the mother of Catherine, the the trapped woman at the bottom of the well, she goes on TV and basically pleads for her daughter's life. And she keeps mentioning Catherine's name in her plea. Yeah, yeah. And, and so Clarice and the other FBI agents and trainees are all kind of watching it together. One of the FBI trainees says, oh, that's really smart of her to continue bringing her name up. It humanizes her, right? Right. It's so that the captor sees her as a person and not just like a thing or an object or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And you kind of like, like as a viewer, you kind of nod your head and you're like, oh yeah, like that, oh, that yeah, is yeah, a, yeah. like a really intelligent, you know, use of, of this televised appearance kind of thing. And then we get to the scene where, you know, Buffalo Bill says it rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this when it's ever it's told or it gets the hose again. And you see that in that moment that Buffalo Bill is so deranged that that this message is completely lost on him. Like he mm. he treats her as a literal object, like a, as a thing rather than a person or a human. Or he's just determined to see her. He's determined not to see her as a person. Yeah, exactly. It's such a great like contrast between between those two moments in time. And, There's and also the, the interesting juxtaposition of the fact that he's got a little poodle named Precious who he's clearly loves very much, but then there's a human being in his well that he's just, he's calling it and he's throwing like chicken bones at her. Like mm -hmm. it's a weird kind, it almost makes him more unsettling when you're like, 
okay, this guy is capable of love, but he doesn't give a shit about people. <laughs> well, and, and that goes into the interesting analysis of, of who is Buffalo Bill, right? And and this is part of what makes the discussion between between Clarice and Lecter so interesting is is their discussion as to who this person is and the underlying the underlying person that they are, right? Because, you know, at one point there's the discussion of Buffalo Bill being somebody who's trying to transition. And yeah. that's actually something that's somewhat controversial to the movie. But then Hannibal Lecter says, this person is not a true transsexual. Like they're this person is just trying their absolute hardest to find a place to fit in or at the very least trying their absolute hardest not to be the person who they are. They yeah. despise that person. And I think John Dem, the director said when, after this movie came out, he's like, well, he's not really a transsexual or he's not really trans. He's just, he hates himself so much that he, like, to him, becoming a woman is the way to escape himself. Exactly. And and that's something that later on in the film, when Clarice goes to his house, there's all this imagery of, you know, Nazi propaganda and uh, there's some other, you know, hate groups and stuff like that in there. And it's just this image of this person who's desperately trying to find a group to fit into, basically. I don't know. It's um all that trans stuff potentially makes this movie problematic in 2023 mm -hmm. i mean to me it just felt a little like you know you get a lot of villains in media especially older meter media that are queer coded right you know what i mean like the joker kind of falls into this sometimes right like ever mm -hmm. since the 80s the joker has almost had this weird homoerotic obsession with batman and right. like you know and then you've got Buffalo Bill and the movie to its credit goes out of its way to say, no, he's not really transsexual, like which yep. was pretty progressive for 1991. But at the same time, we've still got that scene of him, you know, prancing around, putting lipstick on and with his know, mangina with his mangina. Yeah. Which, by the way, that scene is fucking terrifying, but <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> it's very unsettling, but very unsettling to finish that thought to me, though, it kind of felt like this was this movie's way of like having its cake and eating it, too, where it's like, no, really, like he's not queer. He's not trans. But also, like, here's our queer coded villain for the evening. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, and you're you're not wrong. Like, it's definitely a conflicting message at the very least. Like, if you're upset by that, I can't really blame you. You know? No, no, and yeah, I mean, the, also, I mean, the idea of like a man killing women so he can make a skin suit out of them is fucking terrifying and very upsetting. And but... also based in reality, which I will get to very soon, I think. I know. I ha I'm stalling because I don't want you to. But <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that part potentially has not aged so well. That said, I still think, what's his name? Ted Levine does a great job with the villain, you know? Yeah. The fact that he's still great. memorable despite having to share the screen with Anthony Hopkins is... A testament to his acting ability yeah like people if you say buffalo bill people remember what movie you're talking about if you say anything 
beginning with it rubs this lotion on its skin or anything like that like with the it as the as the preface to that discussion like people are going to know what movie you're talking about and that that does speak to the memorableness of of his character yes on on the note of that scene going back to that scene the embedded fingernail in the well as well and Catherine starting to scream while noticing that that's such a good callback to a few minutes earlier in the film when they're analyzing um his first victim Mm, yeah and there's a note that i wanted to make about that when like you said when they're in the they're in the funeral home to analyze the body at this point in time what i wrote down was that the film is constantly putting you in disturbing situations but then it's not only is it putting you in these disturbing situations but it goes out of its way to make you feel like you're physically there Mm. And, and the best imagery of that is all of them rubbing the Vicks VapoRub on their, under their noses before they reveal the corpse. Like, what other movie makes you think of the smell of a rotting corpse before and in such a profound way that, than this film? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and again, that goes back to, you know, the film knows what to show you and when to show you it. And it uses that imagery it's it's not like over the top like gore fest kind of thing. It uses it at very particular moments in time to really scare the pants off of you. Even that scene where they're looking at the first corpse, they don't actually show you all that much. Mm-hmm. Like they know when to pull away and when to focus on their reactions to Exactly. I'm a big horror movie buff and that's my preferred type of horror, you know? The make me think about it more than you're actually showing me it. Because yeah. I don't need to see all that. I like I don't. I'm not a gore porn kind of guy. So, no. I mean, I don't have a problem with gore, but if you can do it without gore, that's true craftsmanship. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of the goggles scene at the end with uh, Clarice being hunted by Buffalo Bill down in the basement? That was upsetting. I didn't care for that. That was very. <laughs> uh, you know, again, she's. When you realize she's alone with Buffalo Bill and you're just, you see her piecing together that she's in danger, like, Mm -hmm. that's very, that whole thing was pretty terrifying. And then when she's going, making her way through, like, his multi-layered murder dungeon, and then when the, as soon as the lights went off, I was like, fuck this, (laughs) like, and then we get to see her through his perspective, like, stumbling around in the dark, like... But then Buffalo Bill is also dumb enough to cock his gun and and then she yeah she moves quick like and and it kind of goes back to one of the first scenes in the movie and and one of her lessons that you know don't hesitate. Yeah, just shoot. So yep. I did think it was kind of funny when she has him at gunpoint and she's like freeze, don't move, hands behind your head and he just runs away and she chases after him. I was like Yeah. You could have just shot him, right? All right. Doesn't, <laughs> like, doesn't make the same mistake twice, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. She learns her lesson. Also, the scene that really got to me was when she finds Catherine, and then she's just like, okay, Catherine, like, I gotta go. Like, I gotta go hunt down your killer. And Catherine just, like, screaming her fucking head off. And like, yep. don't leave me here, you stupid bitch. I was like, to be honest, yeah, if I thought I was gonna be rescued, I'd be like, no, you're not leaving. <laughs> like, and, and all the imagery of that with her and the dog actually is supposed to be basically a callback to the screaming lambs, essentially. Yeah, and it works. It really, really works. Yeah, So agreed. Yeah, you even have to give it to Catherine, too. Like, she's clever enough to take Precious hostage mm-hmm. to try to negotiate her way out. 
Yeah. So it wouldn't have worked because he immediately grabs his gun, but it still unsettled him enough that maybe he was too rattled to think clearly when he had to fight Clarice. Yeah. I actually want to back up a little ways and actually talk about how Clarice ends up at this house uh, and kind of the whole situation around here. Cause I think this is actually the other small nitpick that I have in the film. And, and again, this kind of goes back to the third act trying to find its footing. I think that there are pieces of the story and threads of, of how she gets from going to the first victim's childhood home to getting to where Buffalo Bill is currently residing. I was a little unclear how we got here. So, okay. So I'm going to walk that through for us right now, because that was something that I had to, I had to work out online afterwards. So we see that Clarice go to the first victim's home kind of by herself. And because she's the female, right. And this goes again, back to her, her feminine side, right. She she goes looking around the house to see if there's anything that the other FBI agents have missed. And that's where she finds in that little, what kind of box is that? The music box? Oh, yeah. So in the music box, there's kind of like a, a false oh, bottom to it. Oh, yeah. And so, again, it doesn't really spell it out, but like the implication here is that because all of the FBI agents looking into this are men, they didn't really notice that, right? It wasn't as apparent to them. In her case, though, because she has this this feminine connection with the the um, victim, she she thinks to look there, right? And that's where she finds the pictures. And so she finds these pictures of the first victim, you know, in her underwear, these like Polaroids, uh, like pretty like you know explicit Polaroids. At this point, there's kind of an implication that there's a chance that the person who took these was Buffalo Bill. Yeah. Because it's already been discussed in the film that the first victim probably knew Buffalo Bill personally. Yeah. She then hears the cat meowing. She goes towards the cat, and what she finds is the sewing equipment at uh, the first victim's home. And that's when she puts two and two together, that the way that Buffalo Bill has been slicing skin off of his victims would be similar to that of Taylor. And so... There's the Taylor connection. So he, she's like, this is how they knew each other is through some sort of tailoring group. So she goes and she finds the first victim's friend, Stacy, and she talks to Stacy and basically asks her, you know, like, does she have a boyfriend? Like, what, what's her story kind of thing? And she says basically like, no, but, you know, we did the sewing together with Mrs. Lipman. She kind of, you know, taught us how to sew. And, and this is where Clarice thinks, okay, well, maybe, maybe because I think that that Buffalo Bill is a tailor or is in the tailor trade. Maybe there's some sort of connection with Mrs. Lippman here. And so she goes to Lip- Mrs. Lippman's home, which is where Buffalo Bill is living, because Mrs. Lippman is almost certainly the dead skeleton in the bathtub that we see in the basement. Yeah. And again, this is all like very like implied. And this is, again, like a little bit of the weak point of the film that, that you have to do some thinking about to really get there is because this is such a small town, Stacy, the friend, didn't actually tell Clarice that Mrs. Lippman had moved. And she would have probably known that, right, um, in such a small community. And so 
so that's the first kind of feeling of wrongness that Clarice would have gotten entering this home and being told by Buffalo Bill that, you know, Mrs. Lippman has moved away. Well, that doesn't really jive up with, you know, our expectations at this point in time. So what, wait, what is the implication that Buffalo Bill just happened to be living at Mrs. The implication is that Buffalo Bill has probably killed Mrs. Lippman. Oh, and he's just taken over, like he's just taken over her house. Yeah, because, because... I was thinking maybe like that was his mom or something, but that doesn't really track. Or maybe it does. I don't know. Well, you know, it, it, like it's it's a callback to Psycho for sure, right? This movie is definitely the next evolution of Psycho, right? Yeah. Oh, like for Buffalo sure. Bill is like Norman Bates on steroids. Yeah, yeah, very much agree. And so, so basically, that's why you know all of these pieces kind of fall in together. Why she ended up finding the actual home where Buffalo Bill is residing, and the FBI go to Buffalo Bill's actual home, and it's empty. He's not there because he's he's actually staying where Mrs. Lippman is, where the first person was killed, and then their body was dumped essentially. And it all comes back to like again that kind of that one or two lines earlier in the film where the first person who's murdered is actually the third person who's found because of the way he dumps her body with weights mm. to like throw off to extend how long the police are gonna take to find that first body interesting yeah okay interesting so that's kind of how all of that plays out and kind of all of that like it's not something that i got from the movie like i'm 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 not gonna s- i'm glad i wasn't the state. only one who's like wait what like and and again that's like the only weak part of the movie to me is is the third act a bit of the third act but otherwise and i mean the final confrontation with buffalo bill and clarice is so good that you're almost just kind of like whatever like yeah, we're here no, absolutely like, like i said we maybe could have used like a little bit more dialogue, like two minutes more of explanation here of all of this putting this together. But this is probably something that made a lot of sense in the novel and made a lot of sense in script form. But like you, it probably there's a lot of finesse involved to convey that information visually. And and it's it was lost on me. It sounds like it was lost on you as well. Yeah, yeah. So so that's how how we get there. How we end up there. Honestly, those are a lot of the big... We've been talking for quite a while, too. Those are, like, the big plot points that I wanted to discuss. Was there any other, like, big plot points that you had in mind that you you really wanted to dig into with me? Yeah, I think that's... I know that, like, at 3 in the morning, I'm going to have something I wish I'd brought up, but I think that's good. That's good for me, dog. Cool. So, I want to talk sequels, prequels, and reboots because... In a sense, you know, this is Clarice's. This is the beginning of Clarice's story. Mm-hmm. This really is the midway point of Hannibal Lecter's story. You know, Hannibal Lecter has been captured, and and years ago was really when he did his Reign of Terror. And so the story of Hannibal Lecter is, and the story of the Silence of the Lambs is based on a novel series by Thomas Harris. Silence of the Lambs is actually the second novel in the series of novels. The novel that precedes it is Red Dragon, which was published in 1981. I've actually read Red Dragon. It was a pretty good read. Oh, really? Yeah, I I have a copy of it if you ever want to check it out. I would, actually. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I can get that for you pretty quickly, actually. So, pretty good read. I haven't read The Silence of the Lambs yet, but I I probably should at this point. Apparently, in the book, Hannibal Lecter has, like, a six finger and, like, red eyes. So, Hmm. obviously, yeah, they weren't being particularly subtle. I don't know if if what you're reading is accurate about 
the Hannibal Lecter in in the novels. You right, said well, some pretty outlandish statements tonight. Do you think <laughs> I'm like punking you on your own podcast? A little bit, honestly. Okay, well, we'll see. <laughs> and then, so Silence of the Lamb follows it, and then in 1999, the final novel in the series chronologically was released titled Hannibal. There's actually a prequel novel called Hannibal Rising, which was released in 2006. I think there was a movie on that, right? Yes, there's there's movies about all of these, actually, and I'm going to get into that really shortly. Mm-hmm. But Hannibal Rising and Hannibal, I think, are probably the two lowest points in the novel series. I think Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs are considered the two best works. And I, I think Hannibal Rising, the prequel to Hannibal Lecter's story is is probably the worst received out of all of those. Well, it's it's tricky with a character like Hannibal Lecter, right? Because it's almost like the less you know about him just makes him more mysterious, right? Yep. Well, and and the build up like to in this movie in particular, right? To the first twenty minutes is is what makes the movie essentially right and like do we really need a fucking prequel where we get his fucking tragic backstory and blah 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 i read the wikipedia page that explained why hannibal Lecter eats people and i was like oh well, that's disappointing like yeah <laughs> so yeah it, it's it might be a situation of the less you know the better in terms of film series so like i said all of these books have been adapted so uh the next uh, movie in the series Hannibal, which is the third novel that was written after Science of the Lambs, uh, comes out in 2001, also starring Anthony Hopkins. The other film after this is Red Dragon, which comes out a year later. I believe also Anthony Hopkins, but now I've I've lost that. I think Anthony Hopkins did three movies. Yes, yeah, he did. So so it was those two. And then uh, Hannibal Rising comes out in 2007. That's the prequel, right? Yeah. Where he's a young, and pretty boy. Played by Gaspard Uleli. I don't know who that is, actually. I don't either. But very young, actually, looking at this on IMDb. And then following that, uh, we get the Hannibal series, which stars Mads Mikkelsen, who I recently talked about in the draft episode. That's right. That's an actor who I'm starting to become fonder of over the years. Oh, absolute fantastic actor. I haven't seen the Hannibal series, actually, but it's very highly rated. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I think my parents watched it. No, I've got to check it out at some point. I think I think I would really enjoy it. But yeah, Mads Mikkelsen also, I'm sure, does a phenomenal job with the character as well. Um, I would have full faith in him being able to follow in uh, Anthony Hopkins' footsteps there. He's got the right look, and he's got the right intensity for it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I could see him eating people. And then in terms of a spinoff show, there's the 2021 TV series Clarice, which is the events following Silence of the Lambs, following Clarissa, she becomes a a fully-fledged FBI agent. Uh, mixed reviews on that one. You know, if, if you're absolutely dead set on following that story, I don't, I don't, I don't even know if I could recommend it because, like I said, very mixed reviews on it. If you're a diehard fan of the uh, Silence of the Lambs cinematic universe and you have to see it, go for it, but... Yep, although I do have one recommendation instead, maybe. If you're interested in documentaries, there's uh, a 2010 hour-and-a-half TV movie called Inside Story, The Silence of the Lambs. was pretty well uh, received when it came out, and it's just 
a documentary. It's basically like a commentary of the movie with all of the main cast and crew of the film just discussing uh, the making of this movie. Interesting. Yeah, so it's probably worth your time if you, if you like documentaries about about films. I, I I think that would be worth an hour and a half of your time. I actually have one more surprise, unexpected connection here. This wasn't the first time that Hannibal Lecter's story was adapted for the silver screen. Uh-oh. Oh, oh, right, right. Michael Mann adapted the Red Dragon book and called it renamed it manhunter mm. it was not well received at the time but has since gained quite a cult following that's with brian cox right as yes hannibal lector with a k yep with a k i don't know if we'll get to it on this podcast anytime soon but it is a michael mann film i'm a pretty big fan of michael mann since we've done this podcast i actually rewatched uh thief month or two ago so i think in my own time i'll probably check that movie out because michael mann is really good with ambience and and setting and score and all of that and and that's some of the high points of this film as well so i'm i'd be really interested in seeing his take on on this character i wouldn't mind seeing brian cox's take on hannibal lecter although it's ultimately gonna be a tough act to follow right even oh, yeah, though absolutely. he's the one who came first. Mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere that they actually wanted Brian Cox for this movie, but he wasn't available. So they got Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. <laughs> and the world is better for it. And the world is indeed better for it. Effects and filming. A lot of the effects and filming is honestly just uh, discussions about, you know, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins finding the characters, I think. What I did want to say before I get into that, though, is did you notice how almost the entire film was shot at night and there was almost no natural light used in the film? I did not, no. I thought that was a a really interesting use uh throughout the film like like we almost never see any natural lighting it's not really until the end of the film and even then when he's walking down the pier in that that foreign location it's even kind of like dark and dreary at that point like it's kind of like paints this portrait of of a world that really only lives at night kind of thing yeah it fits the tone certainly yeah so i thought that was a really interesting decision and the other thing I want to talk about was the FBI's interpretation of the film. Obviously, you know, the FBI's front and center of this film investigating here. They were actually very impressed at how accurately the film portrayed their criminal investigations and serial killers and, and everything related to serial killers. They thought that Catherine's uh, scene where she's at the bottom of the well and she's begging to see her mommy was mm. one of the most accurate depictions in the film, which is actually deeply unsettling because apparently deep psychological stress like that will cause people to revert to their childhood. Oh. So there's something to... That's something that just gets to live in our brains now. <laughs> yeah, so you're welcome for that. Um, Try not to think about that while you fall asleep tonight. The only critique that they had of the film was with Clarice showing up at Buffalo Bill's uh, where he's staying at the home because they basically said that absolutely in no circumstance would somebody with that much inexperience and this important of a case be just sent out on their own. Yeah. However, the director's argument here 
was basically like that is the climax like the you know we, we can't have the movie without that moment yeah that's one of those suspension of disbelief moments that you just kind of have to roll with and and so here's the thing though in the original script the way it was written is that Clarice is actually suspended from the FBI because of the failed deal that she had with Dr. Lecter because she, you know she tried to like fake a deal with him kind of thing mm-hmm and so at this point in time, she's actually off on her own doing her own thing in the original script. That almost makes more sense. Yeah, I almost kind of wish they had stuck with that. It's a minor detail, but yeah, it just kind of, you know, like just paints over that little plot detail kind of thing and just ties ties the room together a little bit better. Ties the room together, yeah. All right, so now we get to talk about the fun parts, the all of the making up between Jodie Foster playing Clarice and Anthony Hopkins playing Hannibal Lecter. So Jodie Foster, the first time that she meets Hannibal Lecter, when Anthony Hopkins makes fun of her accent, that wasn't in the script at all. He made that up. That's awesome. And so basically, like, her reaction was genuine in that moment because she was, like, genuinely upset that he was attacking her. Mm-hmm. And so afterwards, she actually thanked him for, for doing that, for pulling that that real emotion out of her and, and getting that on screen and and this is like i said this is where we get into the really fun stuff with anthony hopkins like he did so much background work into serial killers and and who the character he wanted to portray um like he studied files of serial killers he visited prisons like you know he he would go to court hearings where with murder trials and serial killers and he would sit there and just listen to like the details of, of what they would do um, and just watch like how the serial killers reacted to their crimes being laid out in the courts kind of thing. So, so he spent a lot of time with these people and in that first scene, you know, when, when we're introduced to Hannibal Lecter, when this camera pans over to him and he's standing there watching, he's actually looking directly at the camera. And that was Anthony Hopkins' idea so that when they panned over to him, he'd be staring directly at the camera because he basically said that Hannibal Lecter should be portrayed as knowing everything. Mm. Breaking the fourth wall, essentially, and staring into our souls like that. Like, I'm aware that you're watching me. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, which is, you know, such such great insight of the character. The reason why he doesn't blink at all is because he actually had picked up on that. He had a friend in London who almost never blinked while he was speaking, and he just remembered how like eerie that was. And so he basically like took that from his real life. The reason why Anthony Hopkins was cast actually was because of his performance in The Elephant Man, which really confused him because as he said to the director but the character I played was a good man. And the director said, so is Dr. Lecter. He's a good man too, just trapped in an insane mind, which I thought was really interesting. That is interesting. Because it kind of, it frames the character a little bit differently, right? And it almost frames the character from Dr. Lecter's perspective, I think. When they move Anthony Hopkins' character to that temporary prison cell in the middle of that hall Mm -hmm. in Baltimore... Originally, he was supposed to be in a yellow or an orange jumpsuit, like a traditional prison jumpsuit. But instead, he convinced the costume designer to put him in all white to make him more clinical. And and basically, like, that kind of came from a root of Anthony Hopkins' fear of dentists. Huh. Hannibal Lecter is afraid of dentists. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. 
I'm just afraid of them because of how expensive they are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I forgot to mention a couple of things from about Jodie Foster as well. The way that they they shot Jodie Foster's character of of Clarice and, and the perspective of the camera, when she's talking to people, she's often talking to people off camera or or looking slightly off camera whereas all the other characters who are talking to Clarice are staring directly at the camera like it's it's there it's them looking there because a lot of the film is in the point of view of Clarice like we're meant to really feel like we're in Clarice's shoes in this movie I did notice that there were a lot of extreme close-ups in the movie like a lot of face shots where it's like your eye level with another character mm-hmm. and just looking them right in the face. I did pick up on that, yeah. The reason why Jodie Foster got the role as well is because of her just her walking down the hall when she was meeting the director, and he thought that she had like an air of determination about her about getting that role. Because she was pretty dead set on getting this role because this was, you know, this was another like jump into adult filmmaking and, and coming from like a, a childhood actor. Like that's something that, you know, I'm sure if, if I was a childhood actor and trying to break into more adult roles, like that's that's something that a lot of people have difficulty with, right? Yeah, really. So he he admired her for that and and thought that she she could bring that to the character. We talked about the end of the film and how how incredible of an ending the film is. There was actually an alternate ending that was written that was changed, I think, relatively late in in filming. So in in the end, they were still going to have the call between Lecter and Clarice, but in in this moment, he's already like he's completely changed his appearance, and then he tells her that Clarice looked great in the the blue suit she was wearing that day so you know it implies that he's not far kind of thing and then the camera kind of pans out and he's got Chilton tied and gagged in his house and there's a dead security guard also there and then he basically the movie ends with Lecter holding a knife over Chilton and saying well Dr. Chilton shall we begin and and then the film cuts to black kind of thing they decided not to go with that ending because the director found it too icky. Icky. As opposed to everything else in this movie. <laughs> I think that's a less effective ending. I think that's a, not icky. I think it's like almost too Hollywood of an ending. Well, the image of him disappearing into a crowd is mm-hmm. very effective. And then also that line, like, I'm having an old friend for dinner. Also, just it implies that he's left the country, too. So it's really like Hannibal Lecter is at large. Like, that's terrifying. And he's not going to be found for a while, I don't think. And, you know, he's and and what else is the other great part about this is, again, kind of sticks to the consistency of earlier when Clarice says that he's not going to come after me because, you know, he respects me, essentially. The ending that we got points more towards her being correct. Right. And he basically says to her. I'm not coming after you, you know, let's have some mutual respect here. You don't have to come after me either. Right. And and she says like, I can't do that, you know, (laughs) because of what I am. Come on, man. (laughs) Like, yeah. Anyway, the, the last effect in filming I actually was going to mention is David Lynch makes an appearance in this film where about 35 minutes in, uh, when they're in the gym, if you rewatch the film, listen for the quote, Cindy in the ring for Starling. That's actually David Lynch yelling. 
they just happened to be filming season two of Twin Peaks at that time in the same county. And so they decided to go to set that day and say hello. Wow, that is the most David Lynch thing I've ever heard, right? Yeah, so nice yeah. connection to our draft episode. So at this point, I'll just say, if you're interested in Twin Peaks or you've never heard of Twin Peaks, go check out the draft episode because it gets brought up at it some point It does get there. brought up at some point, doesn't it? And the person who brings it up does a really good job. <laughs> <laughs> really ties the room together, you know? And it, it really, really ties does. the two episodes together. So... Anyway, uh, score. So scored by Howard Shore, who also scored Philadelphia. So some consistency in in Jonathan Dam's uh, movies. I really liked Howard Shore's quote about what he what he was going for with this film. He said that I tried to write it in a way that goes right into the fabric of the movie. I tried to make the music just fit in. When you watch the movie, you're not aware of the music. You get your feelings from all the elements simultaneously, the lighting, cinematography, the costumes, acting, music. Jonathan Dam was very specific about the music. And I thought that if that's what he was going for, completely incredible. Because mm. while I was watching the movie, I was like, the score here is amazing. It's just the undertones of the score is really making the primal fear that I have about everything going on really pop. Now, after watching this film, a couple days have passed. I couldn't tell you anything about the score. I remember it being terrifying at the time. But I, I couldn't tell you the, the like, I couldn't, I couldn't hum it to you at all. I mean, I never noticed the score. So, you know, welcome to my world. But the <laughs> only part of the score that I genuinely will live on in my mind is that song that plays when Buffalo Bill is getting dressed up. All the Pretty Horses or something? It's called Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus. And that this film is actually the reason why that song got so famous uh, or, or revitalized the song. Um, I listened to it yesterday. I listened to it a couple times today. It's a good fucking song. It is. Now, I'm just imagining Buffalo Bill getting ready for murder, but it's a great <laughs> song. Like, imagine yeah, I... writing a song that does okay, but doesn't blow up, and then it just becomes like a serial killer's theme song in a famous movie, and you're yeah. just like, okay, <laughs> like, Jesus. Yeah. All right, look back at the times. So I want to talk about the poster a little bit really quickly here. This is considered one of the greatest, most iconic movie posters of all time. With the butterfly on the mouth, the moth on the mouth, excuse me. And, and you know, the skull of the butterfly on there. That's used in other films before. I can't remember. There's one really famous film that uses that, the same sort of skull on it, but it's human beings kind of curled up in the, the shape of that skull. Right. But I haven't talked about this in a long time, but, you know, someday when I have my my home theater this would be one of those movie posters that i would probably hang up just because it's so iconic right it's it pops and so this one would be one i'd be pretty happy about showing off in my home theater when you have a home theater yeah someday when i can afford to like 20 grand to build a cool home theater well on that note subscribe to our patreon (laughs) (laughs) leading up to this film so the people who released this orion pictures They were originally going to release it in 1990, but they pushed it back until early 2021 because they also were the ones that happened to release Dances with Wolves, another film that has a connection in our draft episode. Jesus Christ. Yeah. We're really bringing it back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we are. So they actually, because they were the ones also releasing Dances with Wolves, they wanted to really market the hell out of that for Oscars season. 
they wanted to kind of separate them into two years, which was a fantastic idea because Dances with Wolves won all the awards for 1990. And then, as we'll talk about, this one did all right at the Oscars as well. Yeah. The other part to the promotions and part of the reason why Jodie Foster ended up making this movie is they kind of made an agreement between the two of them that Jodie Foster would get to direct a film if she starred in this role. And so she directed Little Man Tate later this year that this film was released, a film that has not the best reviews. It does. It did win an Oscar. I don't remember which one it won for. It's a weird name for a movie. It's kind of silly, but it was, it was in like a, a show called hoops or something like that on Netflix. And the, it was a cartoon and the main character just kept bringing up little man Tate, like every five minutes in the show it was, it, it was really funny in, in the show, but okay. I never heard of that film until, until that moment. I but didn't think you'd what... be bringing up hoops this evening, but here yeah. we are little man Tate. So just reminds me of the time in little man Tate when little man Tate did <laughs> such and such. I don't know. I've okay. got to check that movie out at some point because of how ridiculous and funny just those quotes are in that show i am curious to see what kind of a director jodie foster is i agree and and that's something that she's known for is uh some of her directing shots that she had Mm -hmm. oh the true crime elements i was going to mention that here as well so uh like i said there was a lot of inspirations to real life serial killers that were the inspiration for buffalo bill the top of the list is obviously ed gein uh for his uh skinning people to make like clothing out of people's skin yeah in addition though dr hannibal lecter also had some similarities he also ed gein would also skin people's faces off and then wear those their faces around his house and that's also the inspiration for Leatherface. Leatherface. And, yeah. yeah, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, another oh. absolutely iconic horror movie. You know, you're a real son of a bitch when two famous movie villains are both based off you. Yep. <laughs> Not one, but two. <laughs> yep. So I mentioned earlier that there was a famous serial killer or infamous serial killer who Buffalo Bill was inspired by to kidnap women with and so ted bundy used to do like the very a very similar thing where he would you know fake an injury like uh his arm in a cast and and have somebody help him put something in the back of his car kind of thing and then and then kind of capture them that way Hmm. so that's why certain scenes like that just feel gross because they are because it's effective yeah it's worked at some point yeah and then the last connection is gary heidnick i hadn't heard of this person before but he actually was a serial killer who dug himself a pit in his basement and that's where he would keep uh his captors in so the last bit of inspiration so buffalo bill taken from a lot of different people and all of it's really gross but if you want to read more about it there's plenty of true crime stories out there there's no shortage of true crime stories (laughs) you can keep yourself busy for a while yeah uh, legacy of the film. So this movie won the top five, or consider what the top five Oscars are of that year. On its, there's only two other movies in history that have done that. So it won Best Actor, Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress, um, Jodie Foster, Best Picture, Best Screenplay, uh, and Best Director. Wow. So the only two other films that have swept the Oscars like this are It Happened One Night, which was released in 1934, 
And one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which was released in 1975, Jack Nicholson. Huh, I've never heard of that first movie. I have. I think it's on our movie list, but it's a 1934 film, so I don't know when we're getting to it. Okay. But Anthony Hopkins' performance is actually the second shortest performance to win the Oscar for Best Actor. He was only on screen for about 25 minutes, and the only person who won Best Actor for shortest time was... I was going to say, was it Shakespeare in Love, the lady who played Queen Elizabeth? Well, you're thinking actress, so there might be a difference there. Oh, okay. Actor is David Niven. He was in Separate Tables, a 1958 film. He was only in for about 23 and a half minutes. Uh, However, Anthony Hopkins, because the film is longer than a 1958 film, he he wins the record for high lowest percentage uh, of in the film. Interesting. Other legacy bits here. So Clarice was voted the sixth greatest movie hero of all time in the American Film Institute's highest greatest heroes, and she was the highest rated female on that list. Mm. And Dr. Hannibal Lecter was voted number one greatest movie villain of all time. It's hard to really think of anyone that comes close, right? The only person I can maybe think of is like Darth Vader or the Emperor, right? Darth Vader, probably in the top five, like Keith Letters, Joker up there. Like, you know, like the the classics, right? Like Hannibal Lecter is pretty scary. He's pretty fucking scary. Yeah. Oh, I I was going to mention, I I forgot to talk about this in the uh look back of the times but so i i said how jack crawford the the fbi professor based on a real life fbi agent who mind hunter was heavily influenced by so john mm-hmm. douglas so he actually personally coached scott glenn on portraying the character of jack crawford and actually while this film was being made uh he was in the middle of actually hunting a serial killer uh the green river killer Oh. Who was believed to have killed more than 90 women in Washington between 1982 and 1998. This is like literally right smack dab in the middle of his killing spree. The real life killer's name was Gary Ridgway. He was actually eventually captured in 2001. And he pled guilty to 48 counts of murder in 2003. So just a lovely human being. 48, eh? Couldn't Couldn't round it up to 50. Well, he's he thought he's thought of to have killed at least ninety people. So okay, they just have enough. There's enough evidence left behind for forty eight. That's that's almost too many. It's almost too many. Yeah, pretty terrifying. Ooh, famous misquote here. How does the salutation of Clarice go when when Lecter says it? I read about this this morning. He just says good morning, right? He says good evening, Clarice. Right. Most people say, hello, Clarice. Mm-hmm. But the, the real quote is, good evening, Clarice. Okay. They actually, in the, the film Hannibal, they say, hello, Clarice, instead, to kind of just make a, a joke about how okay. that's a misquoted line. Uh, so, you know, up there with the, the Darth Vader, Luke, I am your father quote. What's the term for that again? Like when something is misremembered? Like the Bernstein effect? Something like that. Yeah. I tried to look up some references to most recent things. This movie has been referenced hundreds, if not thousands, of times in other media since. Like it's it's kind of impressive the 
IMDb rap sheet of of references. It also makes Roger Ebert's greatest movies list uh, or great movies list. Of course it does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, the last temptations of Christ, the last temptation of Christ is on there. So, of course it does. Well, really famously, it's kind of funny. Um, his co review movie reviewer i believe in chicago famously hated silence of the lambs oh gene siskel yeah and and roger ebert never let him live that down (laughs) good good yeah so famously hated this movie did not get it and roger ebert reminded him of the fact that he was literally the only person ever to have that take (laughs) (laughs) sorry gene so roger ebert good sense of humor personal reviews and the partner factor i've already i've already said it basically like this is i think this is one of the greatest movies ever made there i have some nitpicks in the beginning of the third act otherwise like it's a 9.8 out of 10 there it loses like 0.2 points for you know a little bit of awkwardness in the i think i'd give it a full 10 like i watched it by myself i didn't watch it with my partner emily but no i had a really really good time yeah, just I watched it together. She was like, yeah, that was great. Not, no notes. Perfect. Yeah, no notes. Like I said, for all intents and purposes, it's a perfect movie. It's just there's there's a little bit of nitpicking that you can make in the third act. That's fair. And again, maybe there's the stuff about potentially the potential transphobia of the movie that certainly hasn't aged well. But yep. just in terms of like the script and the characterization and the writing, like I don't think it gets much better than this. No, I very much agree. There are probably some better movies, but it's a tough, that's a tough hurdle to cross. Yeah. I think we should do seven next year and compare and contrast the two movies a little bit together. Because I think the closest comparison in terms of, you know, overall vibe of the movie, subject matter, et cetera, is is the movie seven. Okay. And in terms of its heights. I'd agree with that. But- this is our Jodie Foster movie series. Uh, so our next movie that we're doing for Jodie Foster is the movie Contact, which I am very excited to do, actually. I am not as excited because I'm not a sci-fi guy, but I am willing to partake. <laughs> cool. Have you seen Arrival? No, I haven't, actually. I would say going into this, Arrival's probably like the closest comparison. It's sci-fi rooted in realism, basically. It's like, mm. what would really happen if human beings made contact with extraterrestrials? Okay, interesting. I'm really excited about this one. I don't want to talk, I guess, too much about it because this isn't the episode for that. But what I'll say is it's also stars... Matthew McConaughey and it was actually based on something that Carl Sagan wrote so one of my uh space heroes space heroes yeah okay if if you know Carl Sagan you get it you know Carl Sagan you get it it. you get it so I'm actually I'm very excited to watch this one uh looking forward to it a lot so I hope uh I hope the rest of you the viewers are looking forward to it as well that's right I think that's it and you know remember to tell your dad Tell your dad. Yeah, about tell your dad. Your dad will yeah. really like this movie in particular. Yeah. You, May- you should go and tell your dad about us. And, yeah, and that should podcast. be our new tagline Vintage Cinema Rewind. Tell your dad about us. Yeah, that is. I'm, I'm making it now. Okay, good. Uh, I'm glad. I'm yeah. glad I was here for it. Please go tell your father. Please go tell you. I'd tell my dad about it, but he's dead. So. <laughs> 
Jesus. And on that note. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Good night, everybody. <laughs> uh, nice.